2: Hello everyone and welcome to episode 204 of So You Want To Be A Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al?
1: <coughs> Actually, <laughs> it's not Alison Tate. It's not? No. Oh my God, who are you? No, I don't just have a sore throat. Uh, my name's Dean. Um, Dean! Yeah, that's right. Thanks
2: for joining us, Dean. What do you do with Alison?
1: Uh, she's in a cupboard somewhere under the stairs. <laughs>
2: is it like a harry potter cupboard yes
1: i'm sure it is um, probably more like a mapmaker chronicles cupboard
2: oh yes something like that <laughs> no an adaban cypher
1: adaban cypher yes it's let's keep current
2: So Dean is joining us today, it seems, because it's school holidays and Alison is busy wrangling children and making sure that Book Boy is becoming the next Justin Bieber as well (laughs) as the next Stephen Ramey, who of course is the literary editor of The Australian. And uh, so we've got Dean, but we've we've just got sort of like a... Uh, an abridged version of the podcast this week that we're bringing to you but we hope you're going to enjoy it anyway but Dean tell us what you do and why you're here.
1: I'm here because Valerie said (laughs) come in we we need to uh, record someone uh, other than just myself talking to myself. Um, I I work at the Australian Writers Centre um, with uh, Valerie and our team. I'm in charge of the content. Uh, I do the weekly newsletter that we send out to yes. a lot of people. Um, and some of the um, things like the Q&As we do on on grammar and something close to your heart, <laughs> things which uh, you don't usually get as good a response maybe from Alison, but I like all those wordy things you like as well, word, <laughs> word nerd things.
2: Word of the week. Dean's a fan of word of the week. Sometimes he suggests them. Correct. But uh, Dean, is also, Dean is a fantastic writer and copywriter and also a wonderful artist. But um, he's joining me today because Alison isn't here. But we're going to now move straight on to tell you about this week's competition. Yes. Which is, uh, which is awesome. It's called The Only Living Boy in New York. And we have 10 double passes to Roadshow Films. N- new film <laughs> to give away, and it stars Jeff Bridges, Kate Beckinsale, Pierce Brosnan, Cynthia Nixon, and a bunch of people. Uh, directed by the guy who directed Five Hundred Days of Summer. Did you ever see? That? I
1: did. Yes, I quite like that film. It's a little bit, a little bit quirky, quirky. with old Gordon Levitt and Joseph Gordon-Zoe Deschanel. Yes. Of the, um, yeah. Oh. No, I was having a look at this movie last week when I was writing up the. Um, the in- entry uh, for this one—it's actually yeah—it looks like a bit of a uh, love letter to New York. It's—it's it's sort of I set there. Yeah, it's sort of like a—it's um, been compared to *The Graduate*.
2: Okay, in a sort awesome. of a coming
1: of age kind of style. Um, so yeah, it seems like kind of a good film. So yeah, we've got ten. Tin. <laughs> tin. I always Tien. make fun
2: of Dean's uh, New Zealand accent. Yeah, that's right. So They're we have tin double field. passes Tien. to give away. All you need to go all you need to do is go to writerscentre.com.au slash win and entries close on the twelfth on, on the ninth of October. So right. writerscenter.com dot AU slash win. Oh. We also want to say a big hi. To everyone who is in the podcast group, and that is, of course, the the So You Want to Be a Writer (laughs) podcast group on Facebook. If you haven't joined yet, please join us. It's a wonderful listener community. It's free to join. All you need to do is search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. We'd love to have you in there. And it's so great to see so many different writers from different walks of life, all Pursuing their passion for writing.
1: It is a lovely group. Yes, you should join them now.
2: Tell us, Dean, wh- how did you get into writing? Because you actually started life off not as a writer.
1: Yeah, it was sort of the opposite. I was um, working in advertising as an art director, mm. and um, in creative advertising, you have a art director and a copywriter, mm. and um, yeah, it, it sort of evolved that a lot of the jobs I'd end up writing the copy as well or changing the copy. Um, and it, it is collaborative. How did the
2: copywriter feel when you changed their copy? <laughs> well, he was
1: he, – I think he he wanted to be an art director, so it was a weird sort of crossing paths that we ended up doing the opposite jobs eventually. So it was quite Really? A certain, he became
2: yeah. an art director and you became a copywriter?
1: Yeah. He he um, ended up doing a lot of art direction as well in another job, so um, – Really? But, no, it wasn't so much that his copy was bad. It was just that I, I sort of realised that that's something You just I thought really, that yours yeah. was better? <laughs> yeah. No, I think it was just um, – yeah, I just – I just ended up uh, deciding that was something I, I sort of gravitated towards yeah. and, um, and then I've been working as a uh, copywriter, freelance copywriter f- uh, for about 10 years now, 10, 10, Ten years, yeah, um, yeah and, and obviously work here at AWC as well.
2: Dean is a word nerd, he oh. loves and, and another great yes. thing is that he loves Hamilton as much as I do.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right.
2: <laughs> You're not saying that with much conviction <laughs> at the moment. But he got me onto Hamilton. Yes,
1: yes, it is a good it is a good musical. Um there I, I say that because there's another one in the office that loves it even more and and Valerie and and her Break into Song. So I'm not quite at that uh, maybe my voice isn't as good as his, but yeah.
2: <laughs> All right, well speaking of um loving words, Dean mm. Are you ready for the word of the week?
1: I'm so ready. I was born ready. This is going to be the best reaction you ever get. You'll never get this kind of, well, you'll get a sarcastic one from (laughs) Alison, but this is a real genuine, lay it on me, word of the week.
2: All right. The word of the week is evanescent. Oh, Evanescent.
1: Evanescent.
2: Now, I'm not referring to the emo band right, that sings Bring thinking. Me to Life while standing on the window ledge.
1: And it's not effervescent.
2: No, it's not effervescent. It's okay. evanescent. Right. Do you know what it means?
1: Uh, I'm sure you're about to tell me.
2: Yes, I am. So it refers to something that is vanishing or fading away. So you might oh. say even though he might win an Oscar this year, his fame might be evanescent if he doesn't follow up with a string of hit movies. Evanescent. Oh,
1: wow, that's um that's quite um what? It, it's it's sort of I keep thinking iridescent. What is iridescent? It's kind of got that sort of yes. sort of fading in the light kind of vibe vibe about it. It's um, is, that a, is that like a, a word that gets. Is it in the Macquarie? Is it used yeah. in and all the dictionaries? Yeah. And, yeah. Wow, that's pretty cool. Why you is go. it. Well, I'm just wondering why Evan's in there.
2: <laughs> Evan. Oh, he just coined the word one day. and Because there's a new
1: musical out about Evan. Yes. Um, that's like the new Hamilton. This,
2: that's right. That one, all the
1: Tonys, and that was Evan.
2: Evan Hansen, it's called. Yeah,
1: yeah. And my my daughter goes nuts for that. So. Oh
2: really? Yeah, I've heard songs, a few um, of the good. songs from <laughs> so, Evan Hansen.
1: Bit of a segue there yes. for all you Segway fans out there. All the
2: musical fans more Ooh. like. But let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Our writer in residence is none other than the awesome Kate Forsyth. Now you and I both know Kate because she is one of the presenters here at the Australian Writers' Centre. She is. She has written countless books, and that she's an international bestseller. She She's written children's books, adult books, fantasy, historical fiction, um, a countless number of genres as well as uh, she's a ages. Yeah, a, a machine. She started life off actually as a journalist at the Australian Financial Review. Did you know?
1: I did not know that.
2: There you go. And <laughs> then moved into fiction writing and she's here to talk to us about her latest book. So here's mm-hmm. Kate Forsyth. Thanks for joining us, Kate.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Valerie.
2: Now, your latest book, which I'm seeing everywhere, it's going off, uh, is Beauty and Thorns. For people who have not yet grabbed themselves a copy, tell us what it's about.
0: Beauty and Thorns is a historical novel for adults which tells the fascinating true-life story behind the famous Pre-Raphaelite artist, Sir Edward Coley Byrne-Jones, and his obsession with the Sleeping Beauty fairy tale. He painted it again and again and again over the course of his entire life. And the story behind this obsession with Sleeping Beauty is one about love and desire and obsession and madness, all the great things of a dramatic story. Mm -hmm. How did you come
2: to know about the obsession?
0: Um, So I've always been interested in the Pre-Raphaelites and their amazing art ever since I was uh, doing my first degree. I guess it would have been about 19 or 20. And over the years, I had read a lot about them and bought quite a few books of their art. And I was really interested in particular in Dante Gabriel Rossetti and in William Morris, who's probably best known for his curtains and cushions, but was a poet and a designer and an artist as well. And also, of course, in his best friend, Edward Byrne-Jones. But, you know, I never thought I would write about them. Mm -hmm. Then when I was doing my doctorate in fairy tale studies, I wrote a chapter about William Morris because he was actually the first person in the world to write a creative response to the Rapunzel fairy tale. So he, he wrote a poem. Called Rapunzel, and so I wrote a chapter about him in my exegesis, and that just got me interested in the Pre-Raphaelites again. I, I had to do quite a bit of reading about them to write my chapter, and I just stumbled across this story of Edward Burne Jones and this this painting. Um, his penultimate painting of Sleeping Beauty was the most famous painting of the Victorian era. It sold for more money than a a British artist had ever been paid for and it led to him being knighted Um, and so he he became Sir Edward Byrne-Jones. And it caused an absolute furor when it was first exhibited that they had to hire policemen to keep the crowds back. And Mm. I I didn't know this and I just thought this is amazing. And so um, I just began to read up about it just out of my own interest and pretty soon I knew I was going to turn it into a novel because it was just the most amazing dramatic and heart-rending story
2: mm. so you knew you obviously something about that captured your imagination but beyond that you need to build and decide which characters you're going to include ultimately in the novel and what they get up to and all that sort of thing how did you did you were you clear on that at the start or did you just start with that premise and or that seed and then eventually add them as they came along how did it all work to hang it together
0: well, to to begin with, um, I began to do all my reading and research about about the Pre-Raphaelites again, and um, in particular, I was interested in the stories of of the women. Mm-hmm. Um, as is often the case with the, you know the true stories from history, the men have got all the attention, and the women are only really ignored or are only included as to how they reflect the glory of their men. Um, At first, I had this huge, grand scheme. I wanted to tell everybody's stories because all of their stories were so fascinating. But it wasn't long before I realised that if I did that, I was going to have a novel about 500,000 words. (laughs) And my publishers wouldn't be happy. And so I really, really had to um, pull back my original ideas. I had to discover... And then focus upon my core story. And whenever I was tempted to, you know, bring in another character or to tell another, you know, you know, fascinating life story of another woman of the time, I had to talk to myself very sternly and say, "No, Kate. What is your core story? Focus mm-hmm. on that." And it's a good thing that I did because the book is 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 quite big enough. I didn't need to have another hundred thousand words.
2: <laughs> and so what was the what were the parameters then? What was your deciding factor of who ultimately you felt you wanted to tell the stories about? Well,
0: um, my core story is, of course, Edward Byrne Jones' obsession with the Sleeping Beauty mm. fairy tale. Why he you know, why it was so important to him. And then the women who actually were his models for the whole series of paintings. So the very first time he drew it, he was only in his early 20s. And he drew the young woman who would become his wife, who was uh, called Georgie MacDonald. Um, she was the daughter of a Methodist minister, she had had a, a very cramped and um, controlled life and she um, you know, married um, Edward Byrne-Jones and kind of became part of this, this very bohemian um, and rackety group of artists. So I knew that Georgie Byrne-Jones was one of my key characters and was indeed my protagonist. Um, he also painted um, Lizzie Siddle, who was the mistress and then the wife of his mentor, Dante Gabrielle Rossetti. And I'd always been fascinated by her story and I knew that the world was fascinated by her story. And so I knew that she had to be one of my key women. Mm. And then, um, of course, Edward Burns Jones' best friend was William Morris. And William Morris plucked a girl out of the slums. He had her taught how to speak and act and walk and talk like a lady. And then he married her but she ended up having uh, a very tumultuous affair with Dante Gabriel Rossetti, um, who was his great mentor. And her name was Janie Burden. So I knew that they were the my three key figures, the three that I was going to write about. And then Georgie Byrne-Jones is like the queen. In the Sleeping Beauty uh, story, the fairy tale begins, once upon a time there was a queen who longed for a child. And so Georgie Byrne-Jones was to act like my queen and her daughter Margot was to be the sleeping princess. And she was actually the model for many, many of her father's drawings and paintings and studies of Sleeping Beauty. And in particular, that famous one I've already told you about, the one that just was caused such a craze at mm. the end of the 19th century. His daughter, Margot, was the beautiful, innocent, sleeping princess in that painting, and yet she she felt trapped by her father's obsessive regard for her. She did, did not want to be his muse. She wanted to live her own life. She wanted to escape and, and fall in love and marry, and that um, is what was her... Her great quest, I suppose, was to find the strength to break free of her father's obsessive um, interest in her.
2: Mm. Now, this started off when you started doing research into mm-hmm. this space. And then you ca- your, ca- your imagination is captured by this story and you want to write about the women. But as you say, a lot of the stuff that's around, particularly from that time, is about the men. There's heaps of it. Well, heaps more compared to yes. what exists about the women. What did you have to do to find out more about, uh, about the women? Because sometimes when you read about stuff in that area, then women aren't even named. I mean, <laughs> clearly you've got names here. But, you know, it, so it's very frustrating when you're trying to find out who really... Was the wife of so and so, and you know it, what did they do? What did you do?
0: Well, I, I mean, you are absolutely right. Um, I have to say, when I was writing the Wild Girl, which is the story of Dorchen Veil, who became William Grimm's wife, mm. there was absolutely nothing written about her. Absolutely nothing, barely a word. The Pre-Raphaelites were a little bit later. They were in the in the late nineteenth century. And the women involved wrote, you know, wrote letters, um, diaries. Georgie Byrne Jones actually wrote a book, and so I had um, their own voices that I could. Uh, you know, listen to and try and understand what their personality was like. I could try and understand their inner life. Um, there's, there's also been a great deal of interest in and um, and study into the lives of the pre-Raphaelite sisterhood. Um, there's been a kind of you know feminist. Um, reawakening of interest in these young women because, you know, they all wanted to be writers and poets and painters and artists and designers in their own right. And they were very much um, kind of corseted by the Victorian society in which they lived. And because of that kind of conjunction of these really intelligent brilliant and talented young women struggling to find their own voice. There have been a lot of essays and books written about them. That did make my job much, much easier. Um, On top of that, there's been a kind of um, renaissance of interest in pre-Raphaelite art in the last five or six years. And so I was able to get hold of, um, I was able to go and see their work in a lot of different um, art galleries around the world and I was able to read a lot of those art galleries you know books that they had produced about the work mm. um, and so I spent days pawing over the art reading their letters and you know reading anything that they had had written in their own hand and you know reading what other people had had written about their lives and it's just slowly coming to a sense of what who they were and how they might have thought and felt and spoken.
2: Mm. So this research process, not just for this book, but also your other historical fiction, whether Mm -hmm. that's The Beast's Garden or any of the others, with your research process, do you apply any kind of structure to it in the sense that do you think, well, I'll do the art then and I'll do the, you know, mm. encyclopedia then. I'll do the letters then or whatever. Do you have some kind of approach that's a, now that there's several books into historical fiction uh, that you apply so that there's some, you're not just, you know, going down rabbit holes all over the place kind of thing. It can be very
0: No, I'm pretty much going down rabbit holes all over really? the place. <laughs> um, so, you know, sometimes it's a, it's a little bit like, uh, you know, following a trail of crumbs into a dark forest and then you follow that trail of crumbs as far as it will lead you. And it will throw up all sorts of other new things that you need to know or new ideas, new books. And then the trail peters out and you you have to retrace your steps and then set off in another direction. The research is incredibly important to me um, and um, it helps me find my story. I really need to do most of my research before I even write a single word, Um, particularly when I'm writing about the lives of people who – who really once lived, you know, like Lizzie Siddle and Georgie MacDonald and and Janie Burden. You know, these women, um, I need the parameters of their life when they were born, where they lived, how they were brought up, how they were educated, um, when they married, when they died. I need all those things. I need to know all those things before I can even think about planning or writing a a novel. Um, But sometimes finding out what I need is very, very difficult. And so I will just go as far as I can and then I might need to stop and order some new books. And so while I'm waiting for those books to arrive, I follow another trail of crumbs and, you know, focus on another character or another section or, um, you know, do you know something else that I need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the research is really quite fluid and intuitive um, Quite often, I don't know what I need until I know I don't have it. Does that make sense? Yes. And so, <laughs> yeah, I am extremely meticulous in how ha- in how I do my research and all the records that I keep of my research. However, mm. um, because I need to be able to find it again.
2: Yes. Yeah, so speaking of those records, so you go down your rabbit holes, you follow the breadcrumbs, yeah. but then so there isn't so much a structure with that, but. Do you have a structure then in the way you keep your records in the yes. way you compile what kind of structure do you apply and do you, All right so you know, with yeah.
0: with beauty in thorns uh, one of the very first things I did is is once I established my core story and my core characters which were in the, the four women that I've already spoken about I assigned different colors to them and then um, so they had different color highlighters and different color little sticky tags Mm-hmm. And I like to, to buy all the books that I need because I return to them again and again and again. So part of the early part of the research for me is identifying what books I need. Mm. Um, but I, and then I, I, I then have a notebook. and so if part of my research I might uh, spend two or three weeks on 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 the life and work and uh, language of Lizzie Siddle. And so um, in that part of the notebook, I would mark, um, Lizzie's colour was orange because she has orange-coloured hair, mm-hmm. and any of the books where I read anything about her, I would put in a sticky, an orange sticky for her. Okay. Um, and in my book, uh, in my notebook, I always note the title, the author, the date of publication, and the page numbers. And so I take notes as I'm reading, mm-hmm. and I have a, a pretty precise um you know, notation of what page everything I read is on it. Is this Um, on your computer or in a notebook? No, no, in my notebook because I do it all by hand. Um, It's much, much faster for me and it it means that I can read my research books in bed (laughs) or on the couch (laughs) or at the beach or in the park, you know, it means I'm not tied to my computer. The notebook tends to to travel with me okay? Um, because, you know, I'm a mother with three children. I, I don't always get to do everything at my computer. Sure. um And if I read something on a website, I, t- I make a notation of the website and its, it's full address and the date. Um, and as uh, a book might mention another book that is of use to me, and so when I buy that book, I date it when I've ordered it and then date it when it arrives so that I know that I'm not ordering more copies of a book than I need which sometimes happens yeah <laughs> um, and yeah I, I just keep really really meticulous records and it means that because it's all in my notebook um, what I mean I do tend to type a lot of it up so I, I tend to um, type up timelines and synopsises and character outlines and as I add more to them I type them up and print them out and then up but I stick them back into my notebook. Um, so that you can see the, the process, the, the credit processes from the very earliest ideas right through to the final edited manuscript. It's a really interesting kind of uh, handwritten record of the credit process of
2: writing a novel. Yeah, for sure. So – you research very rigorously, obviously, before you even start writing, and that's an important part of your process. Can you just give us, just roughly, some time timelines for the? Uh, creation of the book so this amount of time uh, in this book I'm talking about Beauty and Thorns um I spent this amount of time approximately on research then approximately this amount of time on whatever the next step was is in your creative process and so on can you just give us some timelines yeah
0: um if you will give me one second I'll just grab my notebooks off my shelf and Ah. I can tell you exactly (laughs) so my my very first idea for um Beauty and Thorns uh I wrote on the 11th of the 11th 2014 And um, I had actually written – so in my diary I had played around with the idea of doing something with the Mm -hmm. pre-Raphaelites around um, the 1st of August 2014. Um, And then I actually decided, you know, to write the book and began to develop it in November um, 2014. So all of my early notes, my early research is all in 2014. Um, By the time – but by March 2015 – I had written up a, um, a a synopsis and an outline, and I'd sent it to my publisher and sold sold the book. So by that time, I'd been working for about four months just on um, working out my basic course story and doing my earliest research. Once the book was sold, then i I settled down to pretty intense work on it. And so from May two thousand and fifteen onwards, um, I'm pretty much doing, all, all of my research. Um, it's, you know, my notebook is pretty, is pretty messy. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still not writing, but I'm still kind of planning. Um, I'm just going to try and find, cause I, I always have my, my first line written in my notebook as well. Mm-hmm. So by September, 2015, which is six months after I began, uh, work on it is when I began to write my first lines and oh, they were still uh, pretty rough. Mm-hmm. Then um, I'm keeping on on working and you can tell when I'm writing because I, I begin to keep um, obsessive uh, word counts in my notebooks. <laughs> and so, yeah, um, and by that time my timelines are, are pretty are pretty developed. So, um, you know, by the time, let's say uh, – at the end of two thousand and fifteen, I'm writing pretty steadily and and getting quite a bit of of work done. Um, you can see all my word counts on each page. For example, on the twenty fifth of May, I written ninety seven thousand five hundred thirteen words. Mm.
2: Um, T- then May two
0: thousand and and uh, that would be probably two thousand sixteen. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 2016, yeah. and then I'm going to my third notebook now. Mm-hmm. Uh, by this time, the story is in pretty good shape, um, and I'm 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 pushing on towards the end and of the writing, and I'm cutting and rearranging and and doing all that sort of thing. So um, I I delivered it to my publisher in. Um, september 2016 and then that after that we began the editorial process so i get back my editorial report uh we we cut we we rewrite and everything else and then it was pretty much ready to go i'm just looking at my the very final notes in my notebook where i have Mm -hmm. um what have i got i've got (laughs) editorial notes I've got emails about what the sales team think this is by um, March 2017 um, and on on Saturday the 18th of March we had the final queries um, from my editor and from my proofreader and then it went off to um, to be printed in wow 7th of March 2017 there
2: you go that's awesome now <laughs> you, if you once it goes off, It's gone off to the printer now. Apart from a situation like this where I'm asking you this question about the timeline, do you refer back to the notebooks? Constantly. So I refer back to the
0: um, notebooks during the editing and proofreading um, process Ah, because my editor will query everything. So he will will just want me to fact check everything and if I have my research there at my fingertips, Mm -hmm. it's really easy for me to do so and so I can easily type up you know, yes, on page 16 of blah, blah, book by blah, 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 mm-hmm. um, you know, whatever it might be. And so um, I'm also constantly referring back to my notebooks um, when I'm doing the final read through of the book to make mm-hmm. sure I haven't forgotten or missed anything. Sometimes you think you've written something and you haven't. And sometimes mm-hmm. you've written it and then you cut it out and you forgot that you cut it out. <laughs> <laughs> you know. These final stages, I just have to be quite meticulous in, in going through and making sure that everything is on the page that I want to be on the page and yes. not just in my head. And so yes. my notebooks are very useful to me at that point as well. I make sure that I've, you know, any question has been answered, any problem has been solved. Yes.
2: Has Have you ever lost a notebook?
0: Um, I have never lost a notebook. I have lost a diary because I, I – um, I write in my diary every day as well. Mm. And so when I was about 19, I lost my diary. I left it on a bus. Oh. But I've never lost anything since then because I'm so paranoid about losing them <laughs> that I, you know, I, I mean, I often joke that when I'm travelling the world and they give you those tiny little safes in the hotel yes. room, yes. I, I always say, well, my computer's fine. They can take my computer. I put my <laughs> notebooks in the safe because yes. I can't afford to lose the notebooks.
2: No, I mean, what would happen if you did? I would have While to you were writing.
0: Oh, yeah, I would goodness. find it very, very hard. Um, you know, and my notebooks are very beautiful as well. Like I I, I, I see lots of pictures in them and, mm. um, you know, I draw maps in them and, you know, they're full of, of kind of really interesting, you know, bibs and bobs that I mm. think one day –
2: You're going to publish those notebooks. Interesting study, yeah, (laughs) I think so. So you talked about in those notebooks, you are quite obsessive with your word counts. Now, what is? um, Are you actually aiming for certain targets, word count targets, or are are you obsessive about them for some other reason? Um,
0: Okay, so there are four stages to every book. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: The first stage is what I call daydreaming the story to life which is reading, researching, thinking, planning, um, you know, drawing up a plot, um, imagining my characters. A lot of it goes on in my head and in my notebook, but I'm not actually writing at all. Mm. Once I begin to write the book, um, I know when my book is due. I know how long um, it needs to be. And so I have a a fairly strong um, schedule. And I usually try and aim for 5,000 words a week. Now, I can write 5,000 words in a day easily when I'm in a state of flow. But mm. um, so this is, is not a difficult target for me, but it's one I must make. Um, if I write 10,000 words one week, I'm not allowed to have the next week off. I have mm-hmm. to write my basic 5,000 words again. Mm-hmm. Now, um, every now and again, um, I will fail because I need to stop and think some more and I realise I don't have all the information I need or the story is, is is running off track a little bit and I need to think about whether I want it, you know, whether to listen to the story and go where it takes me or whether I need to re- remember I need to focus on my core story. Mm. Um, and so sometimes uh, my word count falls behind, but I have quite a lot of room in there so that if I have problems, I'm not going to be late with the novel. Mm. Um, so this period of time, um, I'm, I'm really steady and this is when I'm counting my word count obsessively. Um, it's not just because I want to reach my weekly target. It's also because I'm trying to make sure that all the key turning points in my plot are happening at the right place in the story. Yeah. I'm not allowing the book to run on too much, that I'm keeping it under control, and so because I have, um, you know, because I plan quite carefully, it means that I have a strong sense of where my key turning points are, and so I stop myself. In, if I have written two, three thousand words too much, I can stop and reassess. It, it, it stops me from writing twenty-five thousand words that needs to be cut out later. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that's the real reason why I do it. It's also because it gives me a sense of accomplishment, <laughs> which is psychologically very important during this part of the writing process. It's a long, slow, arduous um, process, and you, it, you need to do anything you can to make you feel that like you're moving forward.
2: Do you reward yourself with anything yes. for reaching what
0: like what? I, I do. I am a big blue – whenever I teach writing, I say to people, reward yourself for writing and punish yourself for not writing. (laughs) So – and it's just – they're just little things. But for example, um, if I sit down and write at night, I'm allowed to have a glass of wine. But if I'm sitting around um, helping my children with their homework or watching TV or reading a book – I'm not allowed to have a glass of wine. So what, having a glass of wine is my reward for mm, I like working it. in the evening. When I have made certain achievements, I'm allowed to go and buy something that I want. It's usually a dress for me. Sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> sometimes it might be a handbag, you know. Yeah. Um, and if I'm and I'm only allowed to have a social life when I'm on track. So yep. if I want to go out on the weekend and catch up with my friends and have a really nice you know, night out and go go out for dinner, I need to have made my weekly target by, you know, about 5pm on Friday. Mm -hmm. And that means I can have the weekend off. If I haven't made my word count, it means I've got to work all weekend, which makes everyone cross. And Mm -hmm. so that's my punishment is I'm not allowed to have the weekend off.
2: There you I, go. <laughs> I think that we went to the same school of rewards you know <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it works for me just fine now you do teach creative writing at the Australian Writers Centre and one of the um, courses you also teach is plotting and planning now you say you're quite a meticulous planner uh, mm-hmm. it, it, what uh, do you plan it in that notebook? And yes, how don't you need more space because you've got like you've got lots of characters, you've got quite a, a lot of stuff that you want to include in the book. You've got so much research. Um how do you how do you plan? Is it just in a linear fashion? Is it a timeline? How does it work for you?
0: Yes. Um well, it's kind of yes to all of those. Um so the um I'm uh a strong believer in, in keeping things simple. Um, so, things like characters and outlines and research and setting um, is all the things that are um, you know a th- a thrown up by my reading and by and by my research and by the time that I've spent imagining and visualising and thinking um, and wondering about my characters and all, all that sort of thing. A plot is a plot is simply to um, uh, to Create and then to organize the series of events in your story. And so it's really very simple. You simply work out what is going to happen in your story and then you put it in the best possible order, just um, usually in a linear fashion but not always. Mm-hmm. Um, and I identify – I know how long my book needs to be. I know how many chapters I need to write if I'm not going to um, you know, write too, you know, too much. So let's say that I'm running a 100,000-word manuscript and each ch- uh, chapter is around, um, you know, let's say um, 3,000 words. Mm-hmm. Um, then I can work out exactly how many chapters I need. And so I simply plan uh, t- 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 you know, just with a single line what's going to happen in each chapter and where my key turning points are going to be, whose point of view is going to be, um, privileged over another point of view where i'm going to break and where i'm going to move to other points of view who's who's going to carry the story all of those mm-hmm. sort of things um, i do just a fairly uh, you know rough and simple outline um, of that and then the plan can change um, as a yeah. story as a story develops often you discover your story by writing it and yeah. so Um, I just simply adjust my plan as I go along. I might uh, think what was going to be one scene turns into three scenes, which means that the book is getting too long, and so I need to adjust my, you know, cut back on other things Um, or, you know, cut back on those scenes and make them much piecier, which is what I usually do. Um, Yeah, I just keep keep this plan in my mind at all times, but Mm. I have it written out in my diary as well.
2: Have you ever been a pantser?
0: Um, see, I really dislike that term um, because I, I think it's a really ugly and inelegant term. Okay. I, I prefer the term um, an intuitive approach to writing or what I would call free associative writing. Free okay. associative writing is, is when you just start writing and you just follow where the writing takes you. And it, it's one of the most beautiful and powerful tools that we have as a writer. I use it all the time. Um I
2: But to write always, a novel.
0: Yeah, to write a novel. If mm-hmm. if I'm writing a scene and the scene, um, you know, I normally try and think about the scene and plan it and visualize it before I see it, but then I put my fingertips to the keyboard and see where the story takes me. I mean um these are not binary oppositions. You are not either an anal planner or a free spirited pantser. There's a whole range of different tools and techniques and ways of working and you move fluidly across them all and you use whatever's going to work and mm-hmm. so if something's not working you do the opposite so if if my uh, I, I plan the scene quite carefully but i'm not managing to write it i throw my plan out and try something else it's not a matter of only having one way to write a book Every single book is a different challenge, a different experience, a different journey, and you use different tools and techniques in every single piece of work that that you write. Mm.
2: So, if people come say to your plotting and planning course, what mm. do you? What will they learn?
0: What I say to them is that um, I will teach them um, all the best tools of planning, and all the best tools and techniques and games and tricks of what I call free associative writing and so that they have at their fingertips, a whole range of different ways of thinking about planning and plotting a novel. And then they can use whatever tool works for them. Mm -hmm. But the, the main people that, I mean the main reason why people are afraid of plotting is because no one's ever taught them how they don't know what to do. And they think because you know they have the misconception that it's doing like a uh, scene by scene breakdown, um, as if you were writing a screenplay. Well, that's not it at all. That's not how you plan a, a novel. It's a far more free and fluid, and um, incredibly easy process. And once people have learnt these techniques, it it just flings open the doors of of their creativity and they find that they have all sorts of things uh, to hand that they didn't know that they could use before. And so Mm -hmm. it's an incredibly um, freeing process. And each of us are individuals and we all work in our own unique way. And so what works for one person may not work for another. But Mm -hmm. if you don't know the technique, how do you know if it's going – how can you try it and see if it works?
2: absolutely.
0: So that's that's how how I work. And I mean – The tools that I teach are everything from mind mapping, Mm. which is an incredibly useful brainstorming tool, um, all the way through to um, character outlines, uh, you know, linear uh, narrative structures, um, Mm. you know, crisis and resolution. Um, You know, we talk about the, you know, the hero's journey, anything at all that can help them um, understand how story structure works and what we're trying to achieve in our writing.
2: Now, you actually started off ages ago as a journalist, right? Yes. And then after doing that for a while and you wrote for like the Financial Review and, and, and other places, uh, you, you then turned your hand to fiction, which is obviously very different, <laughs> particularly yes. very different to writing for the Financial Review. <laughs> um, uh, what do you say to those people who they, I mean, they love reading fiction and they mm. love the idea of writing fiction? But I, you know, I guess because I have so many journalist friends, uh, I come across so many people who th- are confident in writing non-fiction, but just feel that uh, they they don't know where to start with fiction. where What would you suggest to them?
0: Well, apart from doing um, a creative writing one course with you, Valerie, um, <laughs> <laughs> my my advice to them I mean, um having a journalistic background is actually of great use to a creative writer, because as a journalist, I was taught to write to a deadline. To write to a word count target, I, I knew how many words each article had to be. I, I was always writing for a market. So as well as writing for the, 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 the financial review, I also wrote for Vogue and Marie Claire and the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. And each of these types of publications has a very different market and a very different style, house style. And so I was a freelancer for many years. And so I, I had to understand how to write to a brief and this and how to write to a deadline, these are incredibly useful tools for anyone who wants to be a, a creative writer. The primary difference with writing fiction to non-fiction um, has got to do with structure, and it's got to do with the fact that fiction is, is told through what I call the three narrative components. This is action, dialogue, and description. And action, dialogue, and description are like uh, three threads that are woven together or platted together on every single page. And so in an article, you might include some dialogue, which would be a quote from the person you've just been interviewing, um, and you might include a little bit of, descri- of description. You might describe where you are or what they look like, what they're wearing that day. Um, but you don't really have very much action. I.e., You don't actually have people doing things. You, you don't have a setting. And mm-hmm. so it's simply a matter of understanding these kind of narrative components and how they work together and then uh, learning how to how to use them. Um, mm-hmm. Action is what drives the plot of our story forward. Now, one of the problems I do find is that a lot of people who um, come from a more academic or a more commercial writing background
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, have a lot of scenes where nothing happens. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so probably learning um, to understand that your your story has uh, an engine and that mm. engine, it, I mean, the story is like a machine and it, 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 it's driving somewhere, knowing that you need to create that engine, that something has to happen to move your plot forward on every single page of your story. Mm. If I could just teach that to everybody, would see a lot less bad writing
2: mm mm-hmm. Fantastic. <laughs> All right, what are you working on next? Have have you already started your next book?
0: I'm um, I'm in stage one. So, you know, daydreaming the story to life. So I'm working on a new historical novel for adults. Um, it's called The Blue Rose, and it's set in during the French Revolution mm-hmm. and in Imperial China. So half my story is set uh, in France and half in China at the time. That When China was very closed to the Western world and very few people had ever actually penetrated inside its society. So it's it's an absolutely fascinating project, but I've got so much to learn. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm doing a lot of reading at the moment.
2: Wow. Now I have to ask this on behalf of I know that there are a lot of people who discovered you and fell in love with you during when you were writing a lot more fantasy books and yeah. they're, they're still loving you with the historical fiction but I've had people say you have to ask Kate if <laughs> she's going to write um, pure fantasy uh, again in the future.
0: Well, I mean I do write – I. St- I do still write fantasy so i i have an extremely popular series of fantasy adventures for children which i've actually just sold um a film option for and so that's tremendously exciting for me and that is pure fantasy um i have quite often with my books i do have a bit of a magical element through them um i'm not planning to write uh fantasy for adults just at the moment but who's to say what's going to happen in the future um at the moment I'm so busy and happy doing what I'm doing um but I've I've more ideas than I could ever write and so (laughs)
2: yes (laughs) so Uh, (laughs) maybe one day yes and finally what was the most enjoyable well let's start with the challenging one what was the most challenging thing about writing Beauty and Thorns and what was the most enjoyable thing Okay, so
0: um, there are two answers to the most challenging thing. Um, The first thing was identifying my core story and Mm. – and keeping myself disciplined enough to keep to it I kept being I was like a little kitten chasing after all these pretty bright things and <laughs> and always getting so fascinated in all these other stories and wishing I could write them as well and so um and then I had to cut them and I mean I when I teach writing I, I say to people all the time know your core story. so you, so that you don't have to end up cutting out a hundred thousand words well yeah. I speak I speak from experience <laughs> Yes. <laughs> the, the second most challenging thing for me was the I'm writing the story of Lizzie Siddle. So Lizzie Siddle was um, a young woman um, who was the, the most famous face of the pre-raphaelites. Her, you know she was their, their 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 favorite model. and yet her life is really tragic. Um, she you know she became addicted to laudanum, um, she suffered from an eating disorder and um, she ended up dying um, very tragically of a laudanum overdose after her daughter was um, stillborn. And it's such a sad story, and um, having to live inside Lizzie's skin for so many months, to imagine what it, it must be like, what she was thinking, what she was feeling, trying to decide whether she took the laudanum on purpose or whether it was an accident, all these things were you know quite um challenging and difficult for me and writing the scenes from her point of view when she was actually in the throes of her eating disorder that I think was some of the hardest writing I've ever done
2: okay so on a brighter note then what was the (laughs) most enjoyable thing about writing I got
0: to spend all day every day looking at some of the most beautiful art ever created (laughs) And um, I got to spend an awful lot of time reading poetry um, by these beautiful, romantic poets. Um, I really, really enjoyed that. And um, I think it's a strange, eerie, serendipitous discoveries that you make along the way um, that just make it so fascinating for you. I'll just give you one little small example. Um, I, I said before that... Um, Georgie Byrne Jones was like the queen in the Sleeping Beauty, and Margot Byrne Jones, her daughter, was like the sleeping princess. Well, um, it was fairly easy for me to discover Georgie's voice because she wrote hundreds and hundreds of letters, and she and she actually wrote a two-volume. Um, memoir of her husband and and the Pre-Raphaelites. So she spoke in her voice all the time. But Margot was very shy and very self-contained, and there's very little left in her voice. And I couldn't even find out when her birthday was. Now, the whole time I'm writing Beauty France, I kept thinking, what would it be like to fall asleep for 100 years? How much would the world have changed? Just think how much the world has changed from Victorian times to now. Women, you know, I can write, I can work, I can own property, I can have a university education. Um, The women of the Victorian era could not. And so I kept on searching, trying to find out when Margot Byrne-Jones was born. And there was no records anywhere because they didn't keep very good parish records for girls. Mm -hmm. Anyway, when I was in London last year, I managed to track down the parish records for her um, church, and I then discovered that Marco Byrne Jones was born on the third of June, eighteen sixty-six. Mm. And you see, I was born on the third of June, nineteen
2: sixty-six.
0: Oh, exactly! That's very cool. One hundred years later. One 100- freaky. Exactly. Isn't it freaky?
2: So Just gives me chills. Did you? Did you? Yeah, did, <laughs> what? What? Were you sitting? Tell me where you were at the time, and 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 what it felt like.
0: Yeah, I was in I was in Kensington, um, yeah. w- which is where the Burn Jones lived. I knew that uh, Margaret byrne Jones had been christened in the um, in the church at, at Kensington. Its its records weren't online, so I had communicated with the parish kind of cleric. And, um, and then I went to see him and he showed me. So I was in, in Kensington in the church where she'd been christened, and he was able to show me her birth date. And it just wow. gave like, chills all over my body. I could not believe it.
2: Absolutely. That's yeah. unreal. Okay. Well, thank you so much for chatting to us today, Kate. Uh, thank Beauty you. Beauty and Thorns, it's, um, uh, everyone should go get it. Uh, and thank you so much for sharing your story with us. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our course, Short Story Essentials, will show you the techniques to create your own two and a half thousand-word short story. Created by Kathy Tasker, a fiction editor with more than 25 years experience, this course has a very clear goal to help you write your own short story that you can be proud of. One that you can enter in short story competitions and share with your friends and family. We give you the blueprint to structure your short story, teach you vital techniques so that your characters come to life and give you the tools to bring your own ideas and creativity to the process. The course is split into seven modules and each is designed to guide you through each step of writing your full story. Then, once you've completed it, you can submit your story for personal feedback from your tutor. With our online self-paced courses, you can learn in your own time with 12 months' access to all course materials. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash stories. There we go, the awesome Kate Forsyth. She's lovely, isn't she? She is lovely. Now, I am interested and I'm sure some of our listeners are interested, Dean, because the crossover from art director to copywriter is really quite different even but lucky you could do it within the same business i suppose within an advertising agency that's true but presumably at some point you left the advertising agency or i I don't know did you do it for very long before you went freelance as a copywriter
1: um yeah well what happened was uh, i also did a bit of graphic design but we moved to a small town on the south coast Mm -hmm. (laughs) not too far from where Alison lives (laughs) um and it was the idea at that point to um, decide to work from, it was a lifestyle choice, so to work from the small town. Mm. So I, there I was setting up business as a copywriter, but we'd moved from um, elsewhere. And with uh, Sydney in this case was just sort of up the road, mm. but I'd never worked there. So it was. You it never was,
2: worked in Sydney.
1: I'd never worked in mm. Sydney, but that was where I thought a lot of my business would probably be. Mm. Um, typically, as a freelance copywriter, you can get work um, either just direct to a business, mm. but a great way to do it is a lot of the smaller design agencies don't have an in-house copywriter. Yes. But they often want to offer the services of copywriting to their clients. Right. So you end up sort of being their go-to copywriter. Oh. So what I did was, and it was, a, it was like basically across a week, was look up every... Design agency in the region wow. and contact them. this was you know obviously a number of years ago, but I'd phone them and then get their email addresses and The most important thing was the pitch was was the email that I sent to them because of course being ah. a writer you're you're sort of that is you're showing off your craft in that email itself. Yes. So if I couldn't get their attention as a writer in the email, then, well, yes. they didn't want to hire me. So I put a lot of work into actually that original email mm. and it got a lot of, you know, I, I got a lot of clients from that and I've still got a lot of those clients and then word of mouth from them. But there was there was a lot of groundwork just to go out there, cold calling, I guess, and yes. just to, to blanket the whole region and, you know, out of... It was probably about 500 places I contacted.
2: Wow. And, um, that's
1: dedicated. And, well, even if you get like 20 from that yes. as a copywriter, that's just business that you – that's a pretty good re- yes. return. Um, but you do have to make sure that you're going out there with your A game. You've got to – you only get one shot at it and mm. making a first impression as a writer – to make sure everything's on point, everything's spelled correctly when you're sending out an email. If it's an introduction, same thing yes. with pitching to an editor. Yes, um, for freelance. So writing. you called
2: called 500 businesses. I had I had my,
1: a wad of people, which I just worked through. It was like I was in a telemarketing situation. Wow, a telemarketing and business of one. Who would you? <laughs> who did
2: you ask for? Who did you speak to when you called those people?
1: Yeah, well, some of the first calls. I'm, I'm not great at on the phone. I get I used, you know. I, I I um, would freeze up, but you get into a rhythm of of knowing who was going to be answering the call. Yes. Um, And usually I didn't need to speak to the person. I would just ask the person who answered who was in charge of… Hiring um, copywriters. Exactly. Yeah. Who was in charge of hiring copywriters or… Um, the creative director, and I would actually just get their name and email. So it would actually be a very non-invasive call. I wouldn't need to speak with them. Yeah. I just needed their contact because I knew that I could get their attention through the words yes. when I when I emailed them. So it doesn't. you don't need to be going face-to-face meeting with people and putting in that legwork as long as you've got a, a name and an email address and a message that you hope will cut through.
2: Yeah, definitely. So, so you obviously work very hard at um, this – at, at that email, yeah, worked very right. hard at writing a, an email that would capture their attention. So out of the 500, can you give me some proportion of, you know, X percentage ignored you and you didn't hear back from, X percentage picked up the phone straight away, X percentage replied saying, hey, that was a really cool email, but we've got nothing at the moment. You know, what was the
1: breakdown? Yeah, yeah. it's um, it, With any of these kind of things – Being, I think, with direct marketing campaigns in general, a lot of people say like you know a five percent response rate is really really good. So I think it was probably about I probably heard from a more than ten percent, probably ten or fifteen percent. So it's probably about yeah, that number keeps coming up, doesn't it? Um, Between fifty and one hundred probably did get back to me, which I think is actually pretty good. Yes. Um, Maybe five percent had work sort of coming up really soon like they were really keen to not just say i'll put you on my books which a lot of them a lot of the other ones did yes but they would say hey that's really good timing um we've got this coming up i'll be in touch in the next couple of weeks and and that did pan out because often what we forget so it was just going back to the response rate i'd say in terms of actual work from it probably about five to ten percent which is pretty good yes you know, you're never going to get all 500 people on board. Mm. Um, but for starting out, that's really great because word of mouth goes from there and you've obviously got to prove you can do the work. Mm. Um, and I wasn't even going out there necessarily with work I'd already done. Mm. Um, I had worked with other clients through advertising, but really it was sight unseen. They were really going, it. so this, that gives hope to people who are starting out. Yes, um,
2: that's great. And
1: And from there on, um, yeah it was just a case of uh, for for them as well often they don't, businesses don't know that we offer that service, that there's a freelance yes. service out there so if you go there and make it really easy for them um, all they have to do is pick up the phone or, or type an email. Then they love that too. So so
2: you did that investment. You cold yep. call calling five hundred. How yeah. long did that
1: take? Oh well, it was probably it was pretty full on week. I mean, it, you got it started to become a bit robotic. But it was all I was really after was yes. That was the initial getting the emails, and then it was crafting, making sure the email was crafted, and you only really have to write that once. Yes, uh, properly. Um, Great. Didn't matter if did you else was going have to be you thing. then?
2: Obviously, this was many years ago. What ten years ago? Yeah, so during the last ten years, have you had to do it again, and like, or have has that did that create the momentum you needed you know to basically what? start your business? That
1: pretty much was it, and that's what's been amazing. Wow. is The the rest of the business from then on has been hey, I heard about you from such and such, yeah. or or perhaps contacts through networking and and other things that you can do, but generally it was really just that big push. So, you, you know, if you're prepared to do a, a, a bit of an investment in time yeah. to start with, it has actually been a roll-on effect. You've that's obviously got to be good at what you do to, yes. to, get, the, to get the word of mouth. She <laughs> 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 says, yeah, that's right.
2: So, um, but tell me, did you get this idea from somebody? Not many people actually think, I'm going to call, cold call, 500 people in this week. Where did you kind of even formulate that strategy?
1: I think it was just a necessity. I had three young children; <laughs> yes. it was like starving, or or call some people this week. Uh, I think it was just being in a small town. The options were limited. Maybe if you're in a city, you might sort of play around with other things or Cutting trying to meet you know, with
2: people. Or yeah,
1: meeting face to face. In my case, I knew that in a way, my strength was on email, I actually felt yeah. really comfortable emailing. Yeah. Um, so getting that email address was playing to my strength. Yes. Other people that might be face to face, not that I'm bad (laughs) but it was just i just knew from the from the scale of it it was going to be easier to do
2: i think as a writer obviously it makes sense to let the words speak for themselves and um, many i actually met dean many many years ago when he did a couple of courses at the australian writer center so he was a student in one of my classes and then he did another course um with the with another teacher and it it's interesting because i i'll never forget that it was I don't know whether it was New Year's t- – it was some long weekend and there was an alien um, marathon, marathon on Foxtel and um, I was watching this <laughs> alien marathon as in a- the alien franchise, the, the movie franchise. And um, uh, both Dean and I happened to be on Twitter at the same time And through a series of exchanges over that long weekend while both of us were watching the Alien Marathon, I just knew instantly I've got to hire this guy because his words spoke for themselves. Admittedly, they were talking about alien. (laughs) Yes, we we tend
1: to be joined by a a common love of popular culture. Yeah.
2: But if you are a writer think of ways where your words can speak for themselves in your communication with the people that you want to connect with. Um, yeah, but anyway, look, yeah. thank you so much for standing in for Alison today. Really appreciate it. It was That's great right. to hear a bit more about your story. And uh, if anyone else has questions for Dean, just ping us in the podcast group and uh, – we're asking for you.
1: I didn't even have to do my Alison voice impression at all.
2: Oh yeah, but I'll be I'll be keen to hear it later, Dean. No, it's all good. <laughs> all right, thanks so much for listening, everyone. Oh, if people want to find you online, Dean, where can they do that?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Um, they will be able to find me on Twitter. Uh, just look for at. Dean Kuri, K-O-O-R-E-Y. Mm-hmm. Uh, same thing with Instagram, Facebook. Just Google me, I think. He's
2: got lots of There's great a
1: website somewhere there, so K-O-O-R-E-Y. O R E Y. You've got there.
2: great photos on Instagram. Yeah, there you go. And of course, you'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K H O O. We should actually have like, we should do something like the Koo and Kooery. I was just thinking that, you that. Know, we've got almost yeah. the same
1: letters going on. Yeah. There. Yeah,
2: um, yeah at, um, at Valerie Koo, K H O O, on Instagram and Twitter. And of course, you feel free to connect with me on Facebook. You'll also find me, as we mentioned earlier, in the podcast community on Facebook. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. And of course, you'll find all of the show notes. At So You Want to Be a Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. So You Want to Be a Writer is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, the country's leading centre for writing courses. And there are a bunch of fantastic people who make this podcast happen behind the scenes, apart from my wonderful co-host, usual co-host, Alison Tate. There's also Dean and Ra and Stevie and Nellie and Sarah and Kira, and they all work really hard to make this podcast happen for you every week. Now, this week's Easter egg, I thought I'd share what I've been watching because I've been really loving it. Um, I've been watching The Archibald, which is on the Arts Channel on Foxtel, and it has been a four-part sort of mini-series, and it's been just great fun. They have, in the in this series, they've tracked eight artists in their journey towards potentially getting into The Archibald and potentially becoming finalists or winning. Of course, we know who the winner is now, as that's already been announced, but it has been such a great behind-the-scenes look at the lives of some artists, the stuff that they go through, the self-doubt, the um, the, the the painting, the, the repainting, the starting from scratch all over again because they haven't been happy with what they've painted, and the judging process of the Archibald. So that's been a real insight. I've been working on... Um, the putting the finishing touches on our course how to write media releases it's something i'm really passionate about i have been running workshops in how to write media releases and how to get your profile in the media for oh 15 years and uh It's always wonderful when I see people get results. And this course is launching online very soon, around the 18th of October. You heard it here first. And uh, if you want to find out more to get a launch discount, sign up at writercentercomau slash media. But I'm really excited about this course because I've put a lot into it and I know that it's going to be incredibly helpful. And I know that there's nothing else like it out there. I'm loving... This is going to sound a little bit weird, but it's true. And let me just say that none of these things are sponsored by anyone. This is just, you know, authentically what I think and what I do. I'm loving... Um, When you sign up to do your grocery shopping on Woolworths Online, you may not know this if you haven't signed up, but every month, once a month, it's a bit of a surprise as to exactly which weekend, but uh, your first shop that weekend is 10% off, which is pretty good, I reckon. And that's a great opportunity to stock up on your non-perishables. That's, you know, Valerie's tip for the week. Uh, And I think it's just a cool thing to do. Um, I always kick myself when I don't read my emails properly and I've missed the weekend. Um, But yeah, I'm definitely going to be buying up big in the next one. I'm doing... Yeah, I have been doing... A lot of work um, I'm working with a major institution and helping to train their staff because they're really um, ev- they've really embraced the concept of content marketing. So they really understand that their staff needs to be upskilled in the art of storytelling, the art of content writing, and the art of being able to do all that without sounding as if you're they're they're writing an ad or a sales pitch. so that's been. Um, one of the things that have been, has been keeping me the most busy this week. I'm reading something really, really different. <laughs> Regular listeners will know that I recently got a boat licence and I am reading a book called Honey, Let's Buy a Boat by Darren Finkelstein. <laughs> and uh, I met Darren a few years ago and he's the boat guy and... And he wrote this book. It's been so successful, he's now written three in the series. I'm just starting with Honey, Let's Buy a Boat. I may not even buy a boat. In fact, it's highly unlikely I'm going to buy a boat. But I think reading this is a little bit like when I read cookbooks. I'm never going to cook that stuff. I'm just not into cooking. But I certainly love looking at the pictures and liking the idea that I'm going to cook. So maybe I'm just liking the idea that I'm going to buy a boat. Anyway, that's it from me this week. I hope you have a great week.